0: Good morning, VRVC, uh, in person, online. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to John for helping us get this TV all set up. Greatly appreciate that. There we go. Awesome. Uh, Well, we are in week four of this series called Odd Couples, we're looking at relationships in the Bible and in our lives that don't make sense, really, apart from God, who brings us together. And if you've been with us for any of the sermons in the series so far, maybe you've heard us talk about our theological foundation for this series, which is Ephesians 2, that talks about Christ tearing down the walls of hostility that divide people and Christ bringing diverse people together. Maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the power of covenant uh, and this Moabite daughter-in-law named Ruth and her Jewish mother-in-law Naomi, and how the power of covenant helped glue that. Uh, that friendship, that relationship together. And then last week we talked about forgiveness. Some of the oddest couples that we will experience in life is when the Lord causes them or us to, to move uh, through forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, uh, we want you to know that this series is in many ways part of a larger prayer request, uh, you might say, uh, and, and theme and, and, uh, and focus of our ministry this year. Uh, And that is, in a world that has so much disunity and disharmony, uh, the the unity that Christ gives us is evangelistic. The unity that Christ gives us reaches out, it shows something brand new and beautiful to our world. Now, you know that you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, you especially know I'm a sinner, and you know that you're a sinner, and this is not something that we can do on our own, this is not some self-help project, we can't do this in our own strength. But Christ can do this through us. Christ can build something beautiful among us. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at the topic of week four uh, as we turn to the gospel of Luke. It's a dialogue uh, between Jesus and a theological expert. And in this dialogue, Jesus is going to tell a story that I'm going to guess is so familiar that I bet easily 90% of us could paraphrase it in our own words. Uh, In fact, maybe some of you, you're you're looking at the topic and you're going, oh man, I've heard hundreds of sermons on this. So, you know, can't you give me something new, right? Uh, But but here's what I want to say to you. I, I think one of the most beautiful aspects of reading scripture is that there's always this element of deep sea diving. There's always buried treasure if we'll look for it. There are always beautiful pearls if we'll dive down deep. And that's what I want us to do today uh, as we focus on a, a truly odd couple in this story that Jesus tells. A Samaritan and his ethnic rival, you might say, a Jew. And so it's Luke chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 25 and read through verse 37. So hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And God bless the reading of his word. N.T. Wright has said that some of the best-known stories in the Bible are actually the hardest to understand. And I agree with him. Some people have taken this parable, the Good Samaritan, and they've kind of translated it into law. And and there are Good Samaritan laws on the books. And I think uh, that's a very uh, good... uh, uh, application of this story right but 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 is that what this story is trying to teach us how to legally be a good citizen some people focus on the racial element Jew and Samaritan and that is certainly a, a very important part of this story but what if there's more to it what if it pushes us beyond legal axioms and racial principles you see I think this passage forces us to think about some of life's ultimate, questions. In fact, the passage is all about questions. Did you notice that? It, it reads like an extended question and answer session between this theological expert and Jesus. And so this is my kind of prayer for this sermon. You see, I think if we will drink deeply from this passage, we will find ourselves much more likely to experience the joy of of the odd couple life that we've been talking about and praying for. You see, at our church, we believe that all friendships are beautiful, right? All friendships are beautiful. But at the same time, one of the ways that Christ uniquely shares himself with our world is when Christ's church, Christ's body can be very different, like Paul talks about. Hands are different from feet, different from noses, different from ears. We can have all kinds of diversity, and yet we still have Jesus on our name tag. We're still one body, and that beautiful diversity is what draws others in. And when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about age diversity. I'm talking about you know 70 year olds and 20 year olds being friends. I'm talking about cultural diversity. I'm talking about language diversity. Maybe we struggle to, to even communicate with one another, but we know that there's a love that's deeper than that struggle over language. Maybe it's background, it's city people and, and country people. Maybe it's politics, you name it, but, but we're drawn to each other and the Christ that we hold in common is so much greater than these differences that might uh, pull us apart. And so the question is, well, how do these odd couples form? How do these kinds of friendships happen? I mean, do you just walk out into the lobby after the service and find someone you've never met and say, hey, you look different from me. Uh, let's be friends. Well, I mean, you can. You can try that. But but I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. I, I- Instead, this may sound funny, but instead I think these relationships forming are a lot more like the weather. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I bet you've had this experience before. You're you're, you're sitting with your uh, TV dinner in your lap, and you're watching Wheel of Fortune, and uh, you're trying to figure out whether you would buy a vowel or not, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the weatherman breaks in, right? And there's a map, and there's a lot of yellow and orange and red, and these... I've always wanted to be a meteorologist. There's a front coming in and, and <laughs> it's blowing, you know. Uh, and, and so all of a sudden you, you, you see all this and you hear the meteorologist and they're, 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 they're talking about what's going on on the screen. And one of the phrases that they use is conditions are favorable. You ever heard that phrase before? Conditions are favorable. Now, now there may not be a tornado on the ground yet, Here's a tornado watch. Why? Because conditions are favorable for tornadoes to form. Maybe it's sheer winds, or it's the clash of warm and cold air coming together, or it's a tremendous amount of moisture and humidity that's just roiling everything. The the tornado may not come, but conditions are favorable. Now, tornado, it's kind of a negative example, obviously, but I want to speak of it in a positive direction. I want to talk about Uh, what what happens in this passage that teaches us when conditions are favorable for forming odd couples. In in fact, I want to be so bold as to, as to, to pray that these three conditions from this passage would be more and more present in your life and in my life. And I think if these conditions are present, you and I will be much more likely to form friendships that make a difference in our lives, that make a difference in the lives of others, and and ultimately point people toward Christ. So, what are these favorable conditions? It's not, you know, cold air and warm air or sheer winds in in this instance. What are these favorable conditions? Well, the the first favorable condition is, is what I want to call knowing the secret of life. Knowing the secret of life. and the secret of life, Jesus says... Is love. One of the most famous parables ever told, the parable of the Good Samaritan, emerged out of a theological question about the secret of life. I think we see this in the in the very first verse of our passage, which says, On one occasion, an expert in the law, maybe your translation says lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit? eternal life. The expert in the law was an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so the question sounds like a respectful theological question, doesn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But unfortunately, we're told that the expert in the law was trying to test Jesus. In other words, there's a fish hook that's buried in the question. He wants to test Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants to to trick Jesus into saying the wrong answer and then pounce upon that wrong answer. And he asks a question that I think kind of sounds like, what's the, the secret of life? What is required of me to ensure that my life and my life to come will be one of joy? Now, the expert was trying to trap Jesus into saying the wrong answer. Jesus turns the tables, doesn't he? And he asks a question of the questioner. In, in my ears, the question that Jesus asked sounds like, well, you know, you're an expert in the law. What does the law say? What does the Old Testament say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And give the expert credit because he gets the question right. He's, he's combed through hundreds of verses and, uh, and, and, and books like, you know, Exodus and Leviticus and... And and Deuteronomy especially, and what does he come up with? He comes up with two. The first from Deuteronomy 6, uh, one of the the most famous, if not the most famous, Old Testament passage, uh, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first one. Love God with everything you have. The second from Leviticus 19 is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do we know he answered correctly? Well, Jesus says he answers correctly, but we also know that because in Mark 12, Jesus was asked the same question, and Jesus answered the same way. And so, Jesus gives this answer in A+. And I think when Jesus says in verse 28, do this and you'll live, he's not saying that your acts of love will finance your eternal life, will earn your salvation. I think he's saying that the love that's described there is the fruit of someone who trusts in God and belongs to God. So I want you to think about that for a second. What is the secret of life? What is the secret of this life and the life to come? What's the common denominator of the verses in 20, quoted in 27 and 28? The answer's is simple, isn't it? Love, love is in both verses. Love is the center of both verses. Love God and love others. Love God with everything you have and then love others the way you care for yourself. Now, this may seem really obvious. Uh, Pastor Larry is an obvious man today, uh, superhero called Obvious Man. But uh, it may seem obvious, but I don't know about you. It, for me, it's the obvious stuff in the Bible that always trips me up. It's the obvious stuff that I have a hard time internalizing. And I think it's not just me. You know, during the early months of the pandemic, uh, when there were no televised sports, um, I, I watched a documentary called The Last Dance. It was about Michael Jordan. And I came away from this documentary amazed and disappointed. I was amazed at Michael Jordan's skill and dedication to his craft. And there were, there were several different times in, in this series where you saw him caring for others, you saw his generosity. I was amazed. But at the same time, I was disappointed because it seemed to me that at the center of MJ's life was winning. I mean, every athlete wants to win, of course, of course. But it seemed to me that Michael Jordan took winning to a whole new level. Some of his teammates called him selfish in this desire to win. Some said he was a bully. It seemed like years later, he was still holding on to competitive grudges. There's all these memes of Michael Jordan saying, I took it personally. You know, he, he, he's, he, it's like winning became more important than anything else. I ask you, what, what is, if you had to answer honestly, What is your operating system today? What is at the center of your life? Maybe it is winning for you. Maybe it is acquiring (laughs) greed. How much is is enough? I don't know, but I need more. I need more. I need more. Maybe it is approval. Maybe your whole life is, is governed by getting others to think well of you. Maybe it's fear. Fear calls all the shots. What is at the center of life? When Jesus was asked the question, what is at the center of this life and the life to come? There's no room for confusion in the right answer. It is love. Love and devotion to love at the center. And that love at the center of life creates conditions favorable for odd couple friendships to form. Second condition that I spotted. It not only includes knowing the secret of life, but it also includes, what you might say, expanding the boundaries of life. Something that is described by the verb neighboring. Being a good neighbor. You see, when Jesus applauded the law expert for answering his own question, the expert had to try once again to, to justify himself. He asked the question and ended up, you know, not getting the, the, the uh, reality that he desired through his question. And so he comes back again. Maybe he's trying to trick Jesus again. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? You could almost hear him saying, there are millions of people in the world, Rabbi. We can't help all of them. We're going to have to narrow this down. We only have 24 hours in a day. Let's get practical. We're going to need to rule a lot of people out. We're going to need some boundaries here. So who really is the neighbor that I have to love? Kind of reminds me of the question that every teacher and professor hates to hear from a student. You know the question I'm talking about? Do we have to know this for the test? Because we're really trying to limit our knowledge. We're, We're trying to learn as little as possible in this class. We're trying to draw the fence line in. Do we have to know this? Who do we have to love? Let's make the circle as small as possible. And what I love about Jesus' response, you know, who's my neighbor? I love what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Webster's dictionary defines neighbor as. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't give us a dictionary definition. Instead, he tells a story. And that story becomes a movie in our minds, doesn't it? He tells us a story of what neighboring looks like in action. He lets you film it. So, let's talk about the story. There's this guy. He's not called Jewish, but every context clue tells us he's a Jewish man. He's walking a 17-mile trek from Jerusalem, the holy city, to Jericho. If you've ever been on this road, there's a thousand foot drop in elevation. There are caves that line the road. Uh, It is very convenient for thieves to hide in these caves and surprise people who are traveling along the road, and that's exactly what happens. Now, it would be one thing for these thieves to just kind of purse snatch, wallet snatch, backpack snatch, and just run off with the, the man's belongings. But these thieves were so evil, they weren't content just to steal, and so they took his clothes too. They took his dignity from him. They beat him up so badly that Jesus tells us he was half dead. He was lingering between that door between life and death, and it wasn't immediately sure which direction he was going in. Was he traveling back to life, or would he soon be dead? This is a picture of ultimate vulnerability, isn't it? Imagine yourself in that situation. One early church theologian, a man named Ambrose, said that that the Jericho Road represents the world at its worst. At its worst, the world will take our stuff and the world will take our dignity and the world will try to take our peace And the world may even try to take our breath away from us. So now, what do we have? We have a crime scene on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the victim, half dead, is in the middle of it. But good news, friends. We learn that a priest is coming, right? Well, maybe not such good news, because when the priest sees the crime scene, he crosses to the other side of the road to get as far away from the half-dead man as possible but never fear okay because a Levite is coming Levites were assistants to the priests. they help with all kind of practical tasks in the temple they they knew how to change tires okay and so the Levite is coming it's it's, it's kind of like you might say well you know you wouldn't expect a a pastor to stop and help you. But, but a deacon, well, of course a deacon is going to stop. And a grow group leader will certainly stop and, and help you. Ah, uh, no. Verse 32 says, so to a Levite, get this, when he came to the place, right? When he came to the crime scene, when he came to the place and saw the victim, he passed by once again on the other side of the road. It's almost like this victim had a force field (laughs) around him. He was repelling people. Now, it's true that with the priest and the Levite, if the man were not, in fact, half dead, but but actually dead, if the priest or Levite were to check a pulse and, 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 and actually be touching a corpse, that that would render them ceremonially unclean, and they wouldn't be able to serve at the temple for a certain period of time. Maybe that's why they didn't move into that hurting space. Or maybe, as a pastor named Zach Eswine puts it in one of his books, these religious workers saw themselves as off-duty. Mm. As a pastor, that hurts to read that. Right? It's Like, I already put in my eight hours. I'm off. I'm off-duty, right? These... These other 16 hours belong to me. Mm. For all practical purposes, the priest and Levite hung yellow caution tape around the the victim but didn't cross into that boundary. But when the Samaritan comes along, Think about how many different reasons the Samaritan has not to get involved with the victim. I mean, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. I mean, if this man had not been a victim, if they had just been passing each other on the road, who knows how the Jewish man might have treated the Samaritan man. He might have walked on the other side just to not breathe the same oxygen as the Samaritan. He might have spat in the Samaritan's direction. I mean, if you're trying to narrow the definition of neighbor, if you're trying to pull the fence in a little bit, I mean, certainly for the Samaritan, he would have reason to exclude the Jewish victim, but that's not what happens in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, just like the priest and Levite, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he saw him, he took pity. The priest sees the crime tape, passes by. Levite sees the yellow crime caution tape, passes by. The Samaritan comes, he sees the man, and something explodes in his heart. The the NIV calls it pity, uh, the literal word Splunk nidzomai, that will change your life if you learn that word. Splunk nidzomai uh, comes from, the root word of it is, is, is guts, its guts, its innards, its intestines and kidneys. Something happened deep down in the Samaritan's gut. And love exploded. And this explosion of love led him to move toward the victim, to duck under the tape, to to show love in so many tangible ways. There were wounds to be cleansed and bandaged with the antiseptic of wine, alcohol, and and the soothing ease of olive oil. Then the the dead weight of the victim had to be lifted and placed upon the man's donkey, which meant, of course, the Samaritan would be walking the rest of the way. A room had to be rented, a public lodging place, and the Samaritan shells out two denarii, which uh, commentators say was somewhere between three weeks and two months rent and board. Imagine trying to pay for three weeks, two months of room and board for somebody. And then he says, I'll be back. And when I come back, I'll pay more to make sure this man is taken care of. I want you to think about it. There's, there's immediate love. He goes to the man, bandages his, his wounds. Then there's intermediate love. He travels with the man and he gets him to safety. And then there's long-term love. He says, I'm coming back. I'm gonna keep showing up." Friends, it would have been so easy for the Samaritan to look at the Jewish victim and says, that guy ain't my neighbor. There's a lot of people I have to love. He's not one of them. I mean, it would have been so easy to feel that force field repelling. I mean, the Samaritan's not on his way home from work like presumably the other guys are. He's from Samaria. He's he's, he's not from Judah. He's far from home. This is not his country. These are not his people, right? And yet... I believe that you and I will find our hearts in a favorable condition for forming odd couple friendships when we let that deep love for God and that selfless love for neighbor bubble up in us and move us toward people in need. And whatever this cruel world has taken from them, we will work to restore. And that fence line of neighboring Keep moving out farther and farther and farther. Mike Iaconelli wrote a book once called Messy Spirituality. And in it, he told the story of a group of soldiers in World War II. They were fighting in rural France. And during an intense battle, one of, their, uh, one of these American soldiers was killed uh, and his comrades didn't just want to leave his body on the battlefield, and so they decided to give him a Christian burial. They remembered a, a, a Catholic church that they had passed a, a, a few miles behind the front line. And and so they they, they, they carried their friend to that church, and um, uh, they asked, the, they knocked on the door and asked the priest if if, if they could give their comrade a, a good burial, and and, and a church burial, and apparently the priest who spoke a little bit of English um, said back to them in, in very broken English, he says, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but your friend was a Protestant and we can only bury Catholics here. They were weary, these soldiers, after months of war and they simply turned to walk away, but then the old priest called after them and they said, well, you know what, you, you, you can bury him just outside the fence. And at that point, exhausted, cynical, the soldiers did just that. They dug a little grave and buried their friends, their friend just outside the fence. Uh, They finished after nightfall, they rejoined their unit, and the next day their unit was ordered to move on, and the group got permission to go back to the church to race back and just pay their last respects to their fallen friend. But when they arrived in the daylight, they couldn't find the gravesite. They'd been so tired and so confused, and, and, and so they knocked on the door of the church, and they asked the old priest, do, do you know where we buried our friend? It was really dark last night. We were exhausted. We must have, must have been disoriented, and a smile came across the face of the priest, and he said, after you left last night, I, I couldn't sleep. So I went outside early this morning, and I moved the fence line out to include your friend. I love that. Friends, if our strict religiosity is keeping us from showing love to others, maybe we've misunderstood our religion. If our religion builds fences so that we feel free to scorn and avoid other people, right? Maybe it's time to move the fence. I want to be really clear on this point. I am not talking about watering down our doctrine, by the way. Just the opposite. Jesus was asked, what's the most important doctrines, right? What's the most important thing? What's the secret of life? And he said, love, 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 love God. Love others. If my doctrine is causing me to violate the great commandment, I need to rethink my doctrine. Our minds can give us hundreds of reasons why this is inconvenient. <laughs> our minds can tell us so many reasons to put on the brakes. But sometimes that holy love in our hearts just explodes and love floors it. Now, unfortunately, I've left little time for the end, but but, but stay with me, okay? Because I think this is the most important part. Favorable condition for odd couple friendships. The last one is finding the source of life, which is our good Samaritan. I don't want you to miss how this passage ends. Jesus has just shared this gripping story and then he asks, who's the real neighbor in the story? Priest, Levite, Samaritan. And the expert in the Jewish law can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He hated Samaritan so much. But I'm kind of glad because look how he answered the question. The expert in the law replied, the real neighbor is the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Two things I want you to notice. First of all, the heart of neighboring is mercy, showing mercy. But secondly, look at what Jesus says, go and do likewise. I don't know about you. That makes me despair. <laughs> like, go and do likewise. I mean, I don't think Jesus is a, is a masochist or anything, but, but go and do likewise. How am I going to live like that? <laughs> Where's that love going to come from? But I think Jesus wants us to feel a little bit of despair at this point because it can cause us to fall to our knees. And it can cause us to realize who we really need to be able to love others that way. Now, I'll tell you my interpretation. I think what Jesus is doing is I think he's ripping the mask off the Good Samaritan. I think Jesus is telling us that the real Good Samaritan is Jesus himself. You know, if you look at Luke chapter 9, just one chapter earlier, verse 51, very pivotal verse in the book of Luke, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, right? Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, and then the Ascension. As the time approached for the cross, in other words, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. The good Samaritan, friends, is Jesus. Think about it. He's not from here. (laughs) He's from heaven, right? He could not be more different from us. He's divine. He's holy, He's the one the world scorned. He's the one that Roman soldiers spat upon. He's the one who left heaven to show love to us, immediate, intermediate, long-term, eternal. He's the one who cleanses us not with wine, but with his own blood. He's the one who comforts us with the anointing oil of his Holy Spirit. He's the one who bears the burden of the cross. He's the one who gives his life to heal us. He is the one who shows mercy, mercy, mercy. And he makes odd couples out of us, sinners like us. And he says, take some of that leftover mercy that I've shared with you, Larry, and share it with someone else. James Martin was a remarkable Christian. Uh, or he's written about a remarkable Christian named Alphonsus Rodriguez. Alphonsus Rodriguez was a devout believer, a wealthy businessman. He lost his wife and children to illness. He ended up becoming a porter in a monastery. So his job was to open the door, the big, heavy monastery door. Uh, And he, he wasn't qualified to be a priest. He didn't care. He liked being a doorkeeper. And he had this practice. You see, he remembered that teaching of Jesus that said, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. And Matthew 25, verse 40. And so guess what? Every time Alphonsus Rodriguez heard a knock on the door, you know what he would say? He would say, I'm coming, Lord. I'm coming, Lord. Friends, there will likely be a knock on your door this week, your office door, a text on your phone, a call, an email, somebody sticking their head in your office, and it will be in that moment that your instinctive response will come up. But what if you said, as someone who's learning the secret of life, as someone who's expanding the boundaries of your life, as someone who has the good Samaritan, the merciful one, in your heart, what if you said, I'm coming, Lord. (laughs) You came to me. I was spiritually dead. I wasn't half dead. I was spiritually dead. You came to me. You revived me with your Holy Spirit. And now I'm coming to share your mercy with others. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, you are our good Samaritan. You have cleansed us. You have bandaged us. You have clothed us with the garments of salvation. You have borne our burden on the cross. Lord, you are healing us. Lord, you have gone to prepare a place for us. Lord, you have promised to come back, that we may be where you are. Lord, your mercy, we can't even imagine it. Teach us the secret, Lord. Teach us what it means to share your mercy, we pray in your name. Amen.